Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Crossroads this morning. Uh, we're going to get started here. If you want to stand with us, that'd be great. Father, we turn our eyes to you, our attention to you, turn our hearts to you. Thank you for your presence in this place this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving your throne, coming as a rescuer, as a savior to us. Thank you. Let's sing together. How great the chasm that lay between us. How the
rescuing us. And we just are here to, this morning to say we have no other hope but the hope that's in you. No other life but the life that's in you, Jesus. Your word says that we can do nothing apart from you. That, that's a humble just admission. We can't do anything without your Holy Spirit. We just ask that you'd meet us here today. Open up our eyes. Let us see you clearly for who you are and what you're doing in our city. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take a second and say hi to someone around you, and then you can have a seat. Good morning, Crossroads. I have to say, when we're in the round, uh, this view is really beautiful up here, and I just love that we get to all towards the center see each other. Uh, my name is Nathan. My wife, Jana, and I have had the privilege of being a part of this community for the better part of a decade, and I get to have the wonderful announcement of speaking a little bit more intently on the Christmas Eve service, which is coming up in just a few days. Um, we've made mention of it over the past few weeks, and yes, that does say 11 p.m., in case you were wondering if that's a typo. Um, but along with that, uh, there is no child care. I wanted to make that known as well. Um, no, like, children's ministry. Um, we're kind of in that courageous and crazy bunch that bring our young children to an 11 o'clock service. Uh, so if you're worried, if you want to come, but you have young kids and you're worried they're going to maybe cry, or it's okay. We're a family. Just bring them. Um, but last year, it was really a blessing to gather together and to kind of usher in Christmas Day as a community. So we're going to do that again this year. And if you're all about uh, scripture and carols and just singing together as a family, really in an intimate space, it really feels intimate here in the evening, um, I just invite you to come with us uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, yeah, at 11 p.m. It's going to be awesome. At 10.30, I wanted to make mention of this too. We did this last year, and in Typical Crossroads fashion, it was kind of like a last minute, let's just pull it together. Um, but it actually turned out great. Uh, we're trying to do a little more intently this year, but there's gonna be just a time of fellowship at 1030. Uh, so right over on this side, there's gonna be a table, some uh, baked goods, drinks, stuff like that. If you wanna bring stuff, you're more than welcome to too. If you love baking and that's like your ministry, your God-given ministry, bring some uh, baked goods, show up at 1030, have some time of fellowship, and then at 11 o'clock, we'll start our service. So awesome. And uh, Matt's got an announcement. Thanks, Nate. Hey, well, good morning. It's good to be together. Uh, we have a year, another uh, year-end giving update, and I know there's a lot of opportunities this time of year to give to all kinds of things, but our church is specifically focusing on three things. Uh, New City Kids, we heard about a couple weeks ago, an awesome local org that uh, disciples and teaches kids through music. Uh, the next was Brandon and Gabe. You guys heard about them last week, uh, sending them out to Thailand uh, to, do, uh, to work at a seminary, and then this week, I asked my sister to come tell us about Cure. We're hoping to raise uh, $75,000 uh, during year-end giving during this month, which we've done the last few years, and I'm just so excited about these opportunities. I'm excited that we get to do something together and see kingdom impact happen. But Lib, we went to Cure uh, in October, right? It took about 10 people from our church to minister to these kids and minister to the hospital. I was hoping you could share with us what that was like and what we did. 
I'm anxious and eager to share with you guys. Um, I've actually never done this in the round before, so I'll try to walk a little bit. Um, to share with you guys what we did in October in Cure Hospitals, and maybe some of you aren't familiar with Cure Hospitals, but Cure has hospitals all over the world, um, especially in needy places of the world. And I had never been to a Cure Hospital before, although I've heard great things about it um, from many people. Cure Hospital was probably one of the healthiest, most amazing places that I've ever been to witness the kingdom of heaven breaking through here on earth. We went to Lusaka, Zambia, and Cure, Hospital has a hosp Cure Hospitals has a hospital there. One of the things I was most impressed with is the fact that Cure Hospitals is not just about healing the sick physically, but it's also about healing people's hearts, souls, and minds. So here's some of us that went to Cure Hospitals. We actually got to pretend like we were doctors. That's me, second there in there, but I'm, I'm not a doctor, but it was cool to put on the uniform. One of the great things we got to do is just observe some of the surgeries. So what Cure Hospitals does is they take um, children, only children, who have things that are in our life, in the US, in our world, very easily correctable. But where these kids sit and where they live, these are things that are incapacitating for them, things that can't be fixed. So whether it be um, legs that are bent the wrong way or whether it be a cleft palate or something like that, they can come to Cure Hospital totally free of charge and get that fixed. And so how it works is you come as with a parent usually and people come from all over, Zimbabwe, other countries, they hear there's this place in Zambia that you can come and you can take your child and they can be fixed. So they walk, they walk forever, even kids with disabilities carrying their kids, coming here and they check in and within literally 48 hours for the most part, unless there's a complication, they leave totally healed. So it's a crazy, crazy experience, but not only that are they being healed physically, but one of the things about a lot of these countries is that when you have a disability like this, it's seen as a curse. So not, are, not only are you physically ostracized, but a lot of times your family is totally ostracized as well. So you have parents that sometimes are trying to hide these children maybe, or trying to um, work through the social ostracization that occurs when you have a child like this because they think if I associate with you, our family might become cursed. So it's just a backwards way of thinking. So what happens when they come here is they have moms that have come with them that have not just dealt with having a disabled child, but they've also dealt with being rejected from their whole village and feeling very lonely. So when you come here to this amazing spot in Zambia, you all of a sudden have other moms who have felt the same way you have felt the whole time. So Cure Hospital does support groups for the moms while they're there. You can switch to the next picture. They also have ward devotions. So when the kids are gone at doctor's appointments, all the moms come together and get an opportunity to praise God and have a devotional every day. So they're really nurturing the parent as well as the kid physically. This is Chad, one of our guys who led um, ward devotions one day, which was really, he did an amazing job. He might be in here, great job, Chad. Okay, next. The other thing we got to do is we got, there's a hospital cafeteria, so we got to help cook. And this is Jana, Nate's wife, who was just up here. And she's an amazing cook in and of herself, but she got to help them cook. You can do the next slide. And then we got to serve the food to the people too. You can go to the next one. So this is me putting on a little tattoo, um, which is not, not what the point of the picture is, but I just wanted you to show this little girl who came with both legs bent totally outwards. While she's there, she has surgery, gets the cast put on. 
um, and leaves you know, 24 hours later with the casts and then will come back and have the cast removed six weeks later. And it, it's amazing, like they, these people are, it's like too, it's, they don't believe it. It's too hard, too good to be true in a sense. They come, they have this appointment, they've ha lived with this child who they think is gonna be like this all their lives, social ostracization, spiritual ostracization, and they leave totally healed. Okay, next slide. One of the cool things we got to do is we got to do, take the kids into this little section and do a VBS. And so this is a little craft that made Jesus heals. But the great thing about being able to be at Cure is the kids aren't sick. So they just have surgeries, corrective surgeries, but they can still come and they want to hear stories and they want you to be able to tell them about Jesus. You have great opportunity to talk to these kids about who Jesus is. So again, not just the physical, but Cure is very intentional about coming in and reaching hearts, minds, and souls for Jesus. You can go to the next slide. This is us, you get to do, so what Cure also does after this is they go and visit the homes of the people that have had surgeries and check up on them. No matter how far away it is, they send a social worker and a team there to check in and say, how are you doing, how is this coming, and meet, continuing to meet needs with follow-up and aftercare. Next slide. These are some of the boys. This is one of the guys, Sawyer Smith, that came with us. And the boys, even though they have disabilities, they love to play soccer and sports with Sawyer. So he was a big hit there. Next slide. And this is Chad. And you can go through the next slides kind of quickly. But this is Chad again. And this is the playground structure that they have here for the kids as they come in and wait for their surgeries. They're playing. This is a metal swing set that they have. Um, they are super joyful, even though they have disabilities, but they are super excited to be, this is an open field that they have where they can play, where they played soccer. And then this is a little play structure that they have on their grounds too. Cure Hospital in Zambia is an outdoor campus, so they have tons of space to run and play. And this is what we want to bring to Cure Hospitals. So what you'll be giving to if you give to this year-end project from the aspect of Cure Hospitals, this lump sum of $75,000, partly what you'd be contributing to is having the kids have an awesome, safe play structure where they can play. Um, one of the things that I said to Matt when I was um, talking to him about Cure Hospital, he's like, how do you like Africa? Because I'd never been to Africa. And my first reaction is I love Africa, I love traveling, I love seeing the world. But the coolest thing for me is that you, you legitimately see the kingdom of heaven breaking forth in Lusaka, Africa, in this place and on these grounds. And the reality is, is that across the world this morning, there are kids in that hospital right now that are waiting to have a surgery. There are moms in that hospital right now that are having a difficult life of feeling like they're lonely and separated from the rest of their village because they're quote unquote not normal. And you have a bunch of doctors over there that are giving tons of their time and effort and expertise to bring the kingdom of heaven and a little piece of shalom to these people's chaos, which is very, very real. So I just wanna ask you to jump on board. Such a small thing to build a playground structure. Every single one of our schools has them. I think many of you probably have one in your backyard. Um, so if we can contribute and get a safe play structure for these kids to have while they wait for their surgery. Their siblings come with them. The moms sit outside and talk while they play. 
It's just a huge gift that we could give to this specific cure hospital in Lusaka, Zambia. So I'm just gonna ask you to just like reach into your pockets. I'm not shy or ashamed to say that because we all have so much. And the bottom line is that God can do anything and he holds everything in his hands, but he's put a lot of it in your pockets. So he's asking you to partner with him to say, end of the year this year, you guys, our church is amazing. We have, our budget is over. I mean, we have more money than we need. You guys have given consistently throughout the year. We're over budget. So if you guys can just reach in and continue your generous spirit and give to three, these three endeavors that Crossroads has embraced, I'm just imploring you. Like, for me, my heart is the playground. Like, that is amazing. I'm the kids director here at Crossroads Kids, so the thought of that is a beautiful thing. But all of these causes are so worth it. So I'm not embarrassed to say dig in and give what you can so that we can see, continue to see the kingdom of heaven break out all over the world because of the small piece that Crossroads has played in what God's doing globally. Thanks, Liv. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing your heart. Awesome. It's like what you guys, if you've had a chance to go somewhere and you're trying to describe all the things that you've seen and how God's at work, I just think of Luke 9, 2. He sent his disciples out to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God, and that's what we saw. Thank you for your generosity again, and um, I'm looking forward to what God's gonna do, and we're looking forward to reporting on it. As you guys can see, we have these four candles up here that um, symbolize Advent, and we have our last candle uh, this morning, and I'd like to invite up Mike Buck. He's gonna share with us today about God breaking in in unusual ways. A lot of you guys know Josh Buck, uh, from our family, and this is his dad. Thanks for sharing with us today. Good morning, everyone. I was asked to say a few words about how God uses us in unexpected ways, and I immediately thought of uh, the act of encouragement and how powerful encouragement can, uh, can be. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 8 through 11, uh, Paul ad is admonishing the church, and he, he ends up by saying, therefore, Encourage one, encourage one another and love one another as you have been doing. So he admonishes us to encourage one, an, one another. So I thought back on um, how powerful that is and that encouragement can be a powerful tool to bless the body of Christ in unexpected ways. Uh, I was reminded of that recently, just some things that have happened in the last three, three weeks. A couple weeks ago, I had a class party, and we had a photo, and I inadvertently announced that this May will be my last, uh, uh, my, my last semester, and I'll be leaving Indiana Wesleyan University after 31 years of teaching there. Just a marvelous career. I've just enjoyed it so, so much. So I started getting a few notes, some of them electronic, some, some of them written. And what struck me about two notes was that the impact that was being described in the notes was so disproportionate to what I had remembered I had put into this student. Um, and so I thought, what, what, what was it that, that I did? Um, one, one mentioned uh, the, the words, you can do it, Emily, you're smart. And she said I'd put that on a couple of, of, her, of her essays. And she said, um, those words spoke volumes to me at a time when I felt completely inadequate compared to my peers. So I thought, that's, that's great, but I, I don't remember doing anything that significant. <laughs> and then 
Then another one, which was probably one of the nicest I had, had received. These were both from, one was 2015, one was from 2011. Another one said, you encouraged me to believe in myself and in my abilities. Your confidence in me was invaluable, exclamation mark. I consider it one of the best gifts I've ever received. I thought, what? What did I do? So I thought back and I thought, okay, with her, it was a couple of 15-minute conversations in a, in, in a coffee shop at, yeah, at the university coffee shop uh, and some encouraging words along the way with the, with the former one. It was just writing some things on her theme and some encouraging words along the way. So it really did confirm the, the fact that encouragement can be a powerful tool to build the body of Christ in unexpected ways. So I thought, well, maybe it's just that coaches and teachers and professors have opportunities to encourage people that other people don't. Then I thought, no, that's not really true. Any parent, anyone that you know who needs encouragement, you can be a great blessing to, to them. And then I thought back to last summer. Last summer, I was sitting out on the deck with a, with a man who was nine months into recovery from a horrendous two-year period of sin and addiction and a time when he just was destroying his family and his, and his marriage and his life. And he was about nine months into recovery and seeming to do pretty well. So I wanted to encourage him, so I just leaned over, got close to him, spoke his name, and I said, I am so proud of you. I am so proud of the way that you've come back, the way that you are seeking after the Lord, the way that you're using every tool that you can find to rebuild your life and, and, your, and your marriage and your walk with the Lord and just the way that you're panting after the Lord is the deer pants after the water book, as the psalm says. And um, I said, don't ever stop. Don't ever get up going back after the Lord. No matter if you fail, you just keep going back. We went on the rest of the night. We didn't say anything about it. And then um, a couple weeks later, he sent me a note. And he said, Mike, I just want to let you know what those words meant to me that you spoke a couple weeks ago. They meant everything. They encouraged me. They gave me power. They gave me hope in a way that really helped me to go on. So it just confirmed the fact that encouragement can be a powerful tool to build the body of Christ in ways that we don't know. So in this period of gift giving, um, when, when Elijah got depressed, God sent food and rest for him. But in this period of gift giving, maybe you can think of, of someone who really needs to be encouraged and so give that gift. That might be the best gift that you give this season. It's my...
again once again in prayer. Our ears would be open and attentive to what you want to say through us. Prepare our hearts to receive your message. Holy, light, loving. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen. And you guys have a seat. forget how to turn your microphone on. Hopefully I haven't forgotten how to preach. Um, I feel that way. I'm a little nervous this morning. <laughs> Actually, I'm a little under the weather too, uh, but it's okay. Are we doing well? Yeah. Are we in the season or not? Good. And this is one of the few times where Crossroads has like set aside what we do preaching to um, really focus on Advent, the coming of Christ. And we've been doing this by looking at the very first words of our New Testament. And when you think about all the ways that our Bible could start, does this seem a little bit strange to you? A genealogy. Hopefully it, 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 it's less strange to you, um, but let's just look at Matthew 1, 1, these are the words that how our New Testament starts. This is the genealogy. In Greek, it's the word Genesis. So again, connecting us to the very beginning of the Bible, uh, this is the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And today we're going to look at the heart and soul of this genealogy or the personality who is the heart and soul of this genealogy. Uh, the gene genealogy leads to Jesus, but he's not the heart and soul of it. David is. Um, in fact, look at the last verse of this genealogy in verse 17, and I think I have that on PowerPoint as well. But maybe not. Uh, there we go. That's how the genealogy ends. Thus, there were 14 generations, all from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. And in Hebrew, remember, Hebrew doesn't have numerals. Their letters also serve as their numbers. Uh, David adds up to 14. And therefore, Matthew is highlighting 14 because David is one of the chief uh, central parts of the genealogy. Um, now, why a genealogy? Well, you have to look at the world God created, which isn't the world that we live in right now. Not even close. Because the world that God created was good in every way. To put this in musical terms, uh, the world was the most awe-inspiring symphony your ears could hear. Everything was in perfect harmony, and it sang the most majestic song. And sin came in and destroyed all of this, and the world became what it is today, just this obnoxious noise, this clanging gong. 
everything is disjointed. Everything is out of key. Uh, chaos everywhere. And that's the world we live in. The world we live in lies in utter ruin of what God made it to be. It's, it's wrecked in every way. But the hope of Christmas is that God is going to come and to restore, redeem, resurrect this world. Our Jewish friends put it this way. They use the word tikkun olam. Uh, tikkun means to repair. Olam means the whole. God is going to fix and repair the world that he made. Do you believe that? Because that is literally the hope of Christmas. And this hope doesn't start in our New Testament. It actually begins in the beginning in Genesis 3.15 when the world first falls into ruin. God says, I'm gonna break into the mess. I'm going to deliver it. This is essentially what he says to Eve. He says, Eve, through your genes, your offspring, a son will be born and he will deliver a fatal blow a knockout punch to the originator and the perpetrator of this mess. It's an awesome promise. And then so much of the Bible thereafter becomes this waiting game, waiting for God to break into the mess, to bring beauty out of ashes, uh, to restore, to redeem, to give us our life back by sending his son. So when Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel, you're left asking, which one is it? Is it Cain or is it Abel? The Bible says it's Abel. But then Cain kills Abel. And now you're starting to see that this story of Cain and Abel isn't just a story of brother killing brother, but these two kingdoms that are at war, the kingdom of light warring against the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of darkness warring against the kingdom of light. Ten generations then into the story, the world goes so dark that you're just left wondering, does this line, this, this line by which this sun is gonna come, does it even still exist? But there's Noah. And, and God washes the world with a flood. Um, then the world goes really dark again, and ten generations after Noah, there's still this little flicker of light, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, you have this exciting thing that happens where God tells Abraham, leave everything that you know, leave your family and come follow me. And Abraham does. And God essentially makes the same promise to Abraham that he made with Eve, that Abraham someday, through your offspring, through your genes, I'm gonna break through, I'm gonna bless the world, I'm gonna restore it. At this point, if you read the story carefully, the waiting game almost becomes a joke because Abraham is 100 years old. His wife is 90. It's gonna take the, impos the impossible for this to happen. And it does. And Abraham has Isaac. And then Isaac has these to twins, uh, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is sure that it's Esau, but God says, no, it's Jacob. Then Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those 12 stands above the rest, Joseph. Um, and Jacob is sure that, it, that 
it, it's Joseph through which this line is, is going to run, which is why he gives him that, that, that wonderful coat. Rest of Genesis, then, is, is about Joseph and how he becomes one of the most powerful men in the world. But in the middle of that story, there's this ugly commercial break. And there's this story of one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, this man who is filled with hate, and he literally has a son through prostitution and incest. And it's so raunch, when you read it, you're like, what is this doing in our Bible? It's here because God has chosen Judah, not Joseph. And then Judah has a son, and, and he names this son Peretz, and Peretz really is what the whole story is about. It, it, it's where the whole story is moving because Peretz means this explosive breakthrough. And that's the meaning of Christmas. Christmas is about this, this explosive breakthrough into the mess, into the chaos of our world through God's king, unleashing this explosive kingdom that's going to go to the four corners of the earth, repairing, redeeming, restoring, resurrecting. This is what so much of our Old Testament is about. It's about this wait for this, this, this promised son, which is why genealogies are, are all over the Bible. They, they shine the spotlight on the family through which this promised son will be born. That's why when you come to a story like Ruth, which actually makes the literature in our ancient literature textbook that are read in our high schools and colleges today because they see this as just a beautiful love story, but it's more than a beautiful love story because when you read this, you start to realize what this promised son will be. Yes, he's going to be a redeemer, but even more than that, he's going to be a kinsman redeemer. And a redeemer in that world is someone who bought a person's life back. If you were bankrupt, they would just literally buy your life back. They, they would restore you if you were marginalized from the family um, in, in any way. They, they, they would do whatever it took to, to bring you back to the family. And that's what the story of, of Ruth is about. It's about redeeming, but not just a redeemer, but a kinsman redeemer. That means the one who is going to come is going to be our brother. <laughs> He's gonna redeem us as, as our brother. It's that intimate. And that's why the book of Ruth ends with this genealogy. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father, again, highlighting Perez, the son of Judah. Perez, which means this explosive breakthrough of God. Perez was the father of Hezron, going through Ram, um, Ammonadav, uh, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. Now the spotlight is on David, who we're going to look at today. Now, who is David? Uh, David, throughout Israel's history, is, is remembered as God's ultimate breakthrough. God so graced David, and, and through David, God graced Israel. Before I tell you about what the Bible says about David, though, I'd like to share my own personal thoughts on David, because David, to me, other than Christ, is 
the character in the Bible that my heart most gravitates towards. Um, David is probably the person that I identify with the most in the Bible. Uh, I love him. And the reason I love David so much is because when you cut through all the chase of, of David's life and who David is, David loved God. David was passionate about God. David didn't just even believe God or trust God, but, but, but he loved God with, with, with everything that David had. Now, what the Bible tells us about David is it first introduces David as pretty much a nobody. Uh, he's the youngest. He's the least of seven brothers. You can see in the narrative that he was treated that way by his father. Um, he was essentially rejected by his dad. Uh, again, you can, if you read the narrative closely, you can see it. And David says this in Psalm 27 uh, when he says, though my father and mother reject me, you, O oh Lord, you receive me. So he had that, that pain in his life. Um, almost overnight, this, this teenager becomes a national hero, and it's not something that he was even aspiring to be. It wasn't something he was looking for. It was an act of obedience. Um, it's when he saw that Goliath taunting the armies of Israel that he, in his heart, he had to do something about it. And he shocks the world by defeating him. But as quickly as this happens, he becomes a fugitive. He has to run and hide from a jealous king. His life instantly becomes desert. He loses everything of earthly value. And in my opinion, this is David's finest hour because whenever we're in desert, we really get to see what's in our heart and we get to see what's truly in David's heart. He could have so easily had this clenched fist towards God this anger, this bitterness could have overwhelmed him. But instead, you, you, you see someone who's tender, who's, who, who's desperate for God, consumed with God. And he writes psalms like, like Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, O Lord, so my soul, it pants for you. He, he, he writes Psalm 63 at this time, O God, you are my God, and passionately I seek you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you in this dry and weary place where there is no water. And that's David. In a place of des desperation, he desperately seeks God. What's also cool about David's life is that in that desperate place, desperate people also seek out David. They find him. These nobodies, they flock to David, they, they gather around David, and David, being the true leader that he is, sees all the potential that is in these guys, and he believes in them, and they become a community of friends, and 37 of these are written in our Bible as the mighty men of David. That's what they become. David's life shouts so many other things, uh, out to all of us, um, but, but, but as I said, the most profound is this guy had a heart, a passionate heart for God. And he gives me permission. He inspires me.
they have that kind of heart for God. So many of the Psalms, which is our prayer book, are written by David. You know him. Stop listening to me right now. Let's listen to the Psalms of David. Just some of you shout out some of the Psalms that you know. Shout it out. You're not at church. You're in a gym right now. You know, it's not a gym. It's a warehouse. We're barely scratching the surface. This is why in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God says about David, this is a man after my own heart. And so it's no wonder then that, that, that David was thought of as Israel's best. In fact, there's the part in the narrative when, when David goes to God and says, okay, God, I, I just built a palace for myself and I can't dare think of the fact that you live in a tent while I live in a palace and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to build a house for you. And, and God then says to David, David, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And the house that God is referring to, this is all in 2 Samuel 7, is a dynasty. In fact, look at, look at how, li- listen to these words that, that God says to David. I think I have this on PowerPoint. These are God's words to David. David, I will raise up from your offspring, from your genes to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son because your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. So now we know that the promised son is going to be David's son, and this word now, son, now means king. In fact, if you look in Matthew's genealogy in verse six, and it says, and Jesse, the father of, and this is how it literally reads, David, the king. And you keep reading, there are a lot of kings in this genealogy, but only about David is it says, and he begat David, the king. Because David is understood to be the king. He he epitomizes all that God's people were hoping for 
when this promised son came to the world. They wanted him to be like David, which is why one of the most popular names for a Messiah is Son of David. But what am I missing here? A lot. The Bible never does what what all other literature, ancient literature, does uh, with its heroes. It, it, It never flatters its heroes because really in the Bible, there are no heroes except one. So when you go to this chapter in David's life that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which reads like this, in the spring, At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, and one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and that woman, David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. This, too, is a part of David's life. And when you read this, at least I do this, it just begs this question, how could this happen? And my, my, my first response to this is what the Bible tells us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that no one is righteous, no, not anyone. There are only sinners in the world. So we have to be careful who we put on a pedestal, who we praise, because sediments of pride, greed, self-sufficiency are at the bottom of every good person's heart, even those that we might consider to be the best of us. When you read the narrative closely, though, you see that this chapter in David's life, there was a whole series of choices that that led to this. Um, David, first of all, is at the apex of his career, He's just made it to the top. He just built his palace. And I think we know this enough to know that when we, that when our hearts actually get what we think our hearts need to be happy, that there might be the thrill in the moment, but soon thereafter there's this this despair that sets in that that thing didn't deliver what I thought it was gonna deliver. David's in that place. David, in getting everything and being the king and having his newly built palace, his heart is in a place of despair. Second of all, David already broke God's standard for a king because in Deuteronomy 17, God says, I want my kings to be one women men. Just one, one wife. And David already has several wives. The other thing from the narrative is 
it's hinting that David is not where he's supposed to be. It begins when kings go off to war. David is back in his palace. And when we're not in battle, when we're not living out or living into the call that God has placed on our life, we'll get bored. And when we're bored, it will almost always lead to the bedroom in some capacity. Also what you see from this, it's not the first look. It's the second look. And then the third look. And then going down that that path of inquiring. What David is doing is he's flirting with sin and, and the closer he got to it, the more powerless he became until eventually it overtook him, and this is so the enemy's strategy. He lays the bait, then he sets the hook, then he, le- then he lets us get comfortable with that hook in our mouth, and then at the right time, he's just gonna yank it. Some of you are right there right now. But this isn't even the most disappointing part of the narrative with David. It's what happens next. His life becomes a complete lie. He begins to live this life of of deceit and cover-up that that lead to some of the grossest evils recorded in the Bible. Uh, Bathsheba, who he has this affair with, is a member of this elite warrior family. We know this because it's all in the text. Her dad, Eliam, is one of the 37 mighty men listed in 2 Samuel 23. So is her husband, Uriah. Which means David has done, he's lived in the trenches with these guys. These are two of his best friends. So he doesn't just have an affair but he has sex with his best friend's daughter and his best friend's wife. Still not done. He has to cover it up. He has to make himself look good. So he schemes up this whole thing with with his general to get Uriah killed in battle, and it works. Now he's a murderer. He's an adulterer, he's a liar, and he's a murderer. And he's doing this with some of the closest friends in his life. And this is a man after God's own heart. Also reading this story, you have to ask the question, well how culpable is Bathsheba in all of this? Was was she a victim of rape? Did she go to David's palace willingly that night? Did did she even know about this plan that David had to uh, murder her husband? At the funeral, did she mourn this nobleman's death? Now, one thing I do know, the Bible is very quick to call rape, rape. There's no mention of rape here, so this was not rape. Bathsheba certainly isn't as culpable as David, but she still is culpable. 
she too stands guilty of adultery, which in, according to the Bible is a crime punishable by stoning. Now go to the genealogy, chapter one, verse six. You know, it could just end with, and Jesse, the father of David the king, but no, nope, it has to keep going. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you see what's going on there? Now let's talk about what a genealogy is in ancient times, um, and I'm sure this is reviewed to you by now. Um, it, it was incredibly significant in defining who a person ones, was. Uh, one's worth, their status, their place in society was largely determined by one's genealogy. I mean, maybe the closest thing that we have today in our world is a resume. In fact, even Herod the Great, um, if you know anything about Herod the Great, he fabricated his genealogy. He dele deleted some names that were on it, and he added others that weren't. And, you know, we do the same thing with our resume. We only include those things that are going to make us look good, that's gonna, that are going to impress other people. Just like we do with other things like Facebook and Instagram, you know, we know how to doctor the, these things up, manipulate to make ourselves look a whole lot better than we actually are. But when you look at Jesus' genealogy, there's no doctoring. There's no photoshopping. There's no scrubbing. I mean, to read gene Jesus' genealogy in, in Jesus' day would have been utterly shocking. One, because Jesus includes women. And in, in, in that time, in any self-respecting Jewish genealogy, they would never include a woman just because of a woman's place uh, at that time. And, and if you did, and it happened on rare occasions, it would be because you had a Sarah or a Leah or a Rachel in your genealogy. But this genealogy highlights Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Are you kidding? As Gentiles. And just think about how Jews in Jesus' day regarded the Samaritans. A Samaritan is someone who's just had their blood mixed with Gentile blood, which is why they're half-breeds, which is why they hated them. And Jesus is pointing out, there's Gentile blood in my blood. And probably most of all, all these moral failures, I mean, moral failures of the worst kind, all the dirt, all the mess, some of the most immoral and shameful incidents in the Bible are in Jesus' genealogy. And God isn't hiding it. In fact, quite the opposite. He's highlighting it. Almost shamelessly shining the spotlight on it. And then even the best in Jesus' genealogy, David, I mean, everybody wants David on their resume. But it doesn't leave it at, at David the king. It has to remind everyone of all the dirt, the mess, the part about Uriah's wife. I mean, think about this. Why not just say Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba? That would be enough. But, but no, it doesn't even want to say her name, and this isn't to slight Bathsheba, it's to slam David. It's to highlight his sin. Because when you see David in light of Uriah, 
David could be the worst of everyone on this list. Don't you see? It's out of this mess, this messy family, that the sinless Christ is born. Because the New Testament is begging us to see this. That some of the most shameful, embarrassing, immoral incidents in the Bible are in Jesus' genealogy. They're right in Jesus' family. And I know churches today and Christians who exclude people like this. Our culture today looks down on people like this. But this now is getting into the true meaning of Christmas. That Jesus came to the world to include people like this into his family. And here's the deal. If you're part of his family, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to these words. Both the one who makes men holy, Christ, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. (laughs) He doesn't only love us. He's proud of us. To declare our name. That's my brother. That's my sister. In the midst of everybody. And here's the other thing you see. In Jesus' family, prostitutes and kings are equal. As are Jew and Gentile. As are male and female as are the moral and the immoral. They're all the same. Which means, right now, you could be a king in your own right, or you could be a prostitute, but if you're in Christ, you're in his family, and you need to feel no better than any other family in family member, nor any worse. here's what I love the most. No one today in this room can say, I've gone too far. I've made too much a mess of my life. There's no way this God would ever love me and accept me. And all I have to say back to you is look at his family. Because what that tells me, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. That baby lying in a manger means that God can utterly break into your mess, make you clean, transform you from the inside out, and make you a part of his family, just like that. I mean, look at Judah. Judah was this heartless, hateful man, a complete failure until God breaks in and radically changes Judah's heart. Think about Rahab, this prostitute, just living this cheap life until God breaks in. 
And her life has changed the moment she puts her faith in God. Ruth and Naomi, two powerless widows, bankrupt in, in every way until God breaks in and gives them their life back. He replaces their emptiness with his fullness. And then you have David, the king, who might become the biggest failure of them all, an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, until God breaks in. And God not only restored David, but God reconciled David to himself to the point where, where God could look at David and say, David, I love you. I am so proud of you. How do I know that? Because David repented. Psalm 51, and I know that psalm so well because so many of you even this morning quoted it. tells me you know that psalm so well. Um, it's the psalm where David uh, is convicted to the core of his sin. And he says, God, you literally have to create in me a new heart. You have to do heart surgery on me. You have to rip out my old heart. You have to literally give me a new heart. And God does it. And I know this because of what David then writes after he repents. In Psalm 32, David says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are fully covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no longer any deceit. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand, it was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Listen what he says. And you forgave not just my sin, but also the guilt, the shame of my sin. Has God broken into your life? Have you experienced the explosive breakthrough of God? Because what Christmas celebrates is that the wait is over. That God has broken into the mess, into our mess. And he hasn't done it with a set of rules and prescriptions or a philosophy or a theology. This breakthrough is God himself, the promised son. And what I like about the last verse of Jesus' genealogy is Matthew presents to us three sets of 14 and the Jewish people love to do things with numbers because it's actually six sets of seven, which means Jesus, when he comes to the world, is the seventh seven. And you're left saying to yourself, so? <laughs> seven in the Bible is the number of completion, perfection, rest, the seventh seven is jubilee. This is why seven is God's number. And this is what God in Christ came to the world to bring. Wholeness, completion, shalom, rest, jubilee. 
You need breakthrough. Maybe you're a Ruth or a Naomi today. Your life is bankrupt. Maybe not even materially, but you're bankrupt relationally, morally, spiritually. Your life is empty. Maybe you're a Rahab and you've prostituted your life. You've made choice after choice of, of living this cheap life and you feel unloved. Maybe you're a Judah. You're just a selfish person and your selfishness has not only hurt others, but it's hurt yourself. Maybe you're David. On the outside, everybody thinks you have the perfect life. You're kingly, you're queenly. But inside, if people knew, you're living a whole different life. You have secrets. The secrets are leading to addictions and struggles where your life is spinning out of control. Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you really come to him? Because what Jesus is asking us to do is to repent, to leave living life for ourselves, to leave the things that we think are gonna satisfy. In fact, when you come to Christ, it's not even that you have to muster up all this faith and trust. You just have to take what you're already believing, the things that you're already trusting in, and, and replace those things and bring all that trust and belief and lay it at the feet of Jesus. And if anyone today would like to come and repent and do it more than just by sitting in your chair, the people in the Bible went public with their repentance. And Jesus touched them and he healed them and gave them rest. God, in this chaotic world, and God, maybe even in the chaos of our own lives. As Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance because we are constantly getting entangled in the world and we're constantly moving away from you. And that's why repentance is such a beautiful thing that we get to do all the time. We get to turn. We get to be like David who said, then I acknowledge my sin before you. And I turn to you forgave me my sin and the guilt of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this world. For people like us, in your name I pray. Amen.
end with uh, the Psalms. If there's a Psalm on your heart to pray, just pray it out. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who am I that you would even consider me? What am I that you would even think about me? Yet you have made me just a little less than yourself. You've crowned me with glory and honor. You've put all things under my feet. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you for being the son of David and sending David's son into the world. For you so love the world that you gave us your son. God, may we give ourselves to you in the same way you've given yourself to us. In your name we pray, amen. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody.